You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. My guest today is Mike Bridenstine, who is a product of the Chicago stand-up scene. He has performed at festivals all around the United States, Canada, and the UK, including New Faces at the Just for Last Festival in Montreal. Some of his TV credits include Last Call with Carson Daly, Adam Devine's House Party, and The Eric Andre Show. He's got a new book. Uh, it's called The Perfect Amount of Wrong, The Rise of Alt Comedy on Chicago's North Side. I really enjoyed this this conversation. Um, it's, a, it's a scene that I'm attached to and was in, uh, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Bridenstine, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kelly. The first words in the prologue to your new book are, quote, Chicago was an improv town and everybody knew it, end quote. So I, I think it's important to note uh, uh, that how unlikely it would be at, at really any given time for a stand-up scene to come through Chicago. And I, and I think it did. Your book talks about it. But it's not necessarily recognized. And I imagine that's why you wrote the book. Yeah, I think that enough people have kind of been like, I have noticed recently, the, the more successful that the upper echelon of that scene has gotten, that it's kind of like, hey, all of you are all of those people and all of you guys were there at the same yeah. time. Like what caused that and what happened? And I think that the more that I've thought about it, the it gets more unlikely. Like there's so <laughs> the many reasons. About it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's so many reasons that it should have been impossible. Yeah. And yet, and yet it did happen. And so I wanted to explore the reasons why. All right. So we should probably give people a bit of a primer on this, which, which I think I, we don't have to go back to 1959. People know about <laughs> Second city, but I, let, let's talk about the eighties because there was this insane standup boom. Yes. It, Chicago had, I don't know, like dozens of yeah, comedy I think it was spots. 14 or 15 legit comedy rooms, like professional comedy rooms. And I'm saying legit. There's probably another 20. There's one-nighters uh, all over the city, but there were comedy clubs, plural, yep. all over the place. Yep. I read one time Tulsa, Oklahoma had three functioning comedy clubs. How many like, people are in Tulsa? That's too many. Not, that's, that's too many comedy clubs. So what happened at the end of the 80s, as Comedy Central goes on the air, and there's so many clubs that the kind of the, the talent level had to be watered down to support that many full-time right. comedy clubs. You're not going to see three amazing headliners in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're just not, especially if Chicago has 14 at the same time there's it just got watered down and fan base and population said this fad is over in in the white american version of it of course the 90s um exploded with with urban comedy and deaf comedy jam and and that sort of thing but for the observational white uh baby boomer early gen x america that bottomed out in the early 90s. And so stand-up nationally to a national mainstream audience was, this is a thing that, this is lame. This is, this is made mm. fun of when I was growing up, when I would watch uh, sh shows that were 
for Gen X, like Beavis and Butthead, they made fun of stand-up and made fun of observational comedy. So on top of Chicago being the home of Second City, stand-up comedy nationally was completely lame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and because I started producing here in 92, I came on the scene in 88, and and we should say this too, this even adds more to your unlikely, is yes, all these comedy rooms but man, all the improv and sketch and alternative rooms that happen. So we're talking Second City and Improv Olympic and the Annoyance starting and comedy sports and the you know uh, and places like Cross Currents, which we're doing. People like Aaron Freeman, who had sort of a in between stand up and theater kind of thing. And even at the theaters, you would see you know one man shows and that sort of thing. So bo- booming, and 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 then and then it all goes away. Then it all goes away. And so there's kind of all of these people are still in Chicago in the mid nineties and the early nineties. They uh, second city acts as like a beacon to a lot of comedy people as, as yeah. everybody listening to this knows, but the people who wanted to do stand up, they could go to Zanies. But they couldn't go to Zanies. I mean, I mean they, they, everybody tries, everybody tries to go to Zanies and let's then explain this because like, I don't want to make Zanies the villain. Uh, my good friend Bert Haas is retired from there, but uh, they Zanies, which is the uh, and it's still just down the street from Second City. It is the one stall where it's made it through all this thing. It was never really friendly to develop. It didn't develop hometown comics or develop comics. It took road comics, right? Yeah, they didn't nurture a local scene. They didn't have a Monday open mic. They didn't have it. And and Bert is a survivor. Bert was the one guy that, and, and, you know, some of the other people that ran that club with Bert and yep. owned the club, but all of these clubs had closed, including like all over that general area. The, the, um, the, what was it? The improv closed improv the, funny firm, the funny firm closed. And he was the last, he was the last club standing yeah. And And if people go there on an, on the off chance and see a bad comedian, an open mic comedian, and it says Zany's behind them, they might not understand, you know, that that is uh, an open mic. They might think, boy, I went to Zany's and it was terrible. <laughs> so he, I understand. I don't know if that was his reasoning, but I, I, I get, I get uh, why somebody wouldn't do that, but that, but that lack of anywhere for people to go in Chicago to do stand up led to a kind of DIY spirit. Let's go, yeah. to, let's go f- to these bars on their off nights and let's ask them if we can put on a show. And at that point in time, it got more and more that the rejection from Zanies and the rejection of the type of comedy that was being done to tourists in those clubs is, I think that if Bert had nurtured a local scene, none of the things that I talk about in the book would have happened. So I say that there's a symbiotic relationship of sorts where Bert gets, uh, you know, he gets the Zanies gets to stay open and thrive for 40 years. And then everybody else in the scene gets to go become whatever they, you know, they wanted to. So what's interesting about this, and this is a thing that, you know, reading this book was, we talked about this before we jumped on. It was fascinating for me, both, of course, I'm, I'm in the book because I was... You're in it a lot. You're into it. Yeah, I, well, I, and I was kind of there, right? I, I was there for some of this stuff, and I wasn't for others. And, and But I think that what, what I've understood about the spirit of the improv community, even Second City, top of the mountain of the improv community, is that it is becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable with having places to fail. We, we have this, this three act format where the third act, which is free is improvised. The actors still sort of dressed down for it. It can be garbage and it doesn't matter because everyone's kind of there for the fun of it. And they're usually kind of drunk. So we've had to sort of create our own lab uh, as a way to keep cutting edge um, and, and there was certainly a period, and we're kind of talking about it certainly before the, the 90s or, yeah, yeah, 80. The 80s, Second City was a tourist trap. That's, that's how we were acknowledged. That was kind of, it's not like there weren't great people here, but, you know, we were sold out every night and, and that. So I'm curious. So let's talk a little bit about some of these early purveyors. And the, the first one you talk about, I didn't know about, which is the Comedy Asylum. Yeah, that one is not as written about. It's not as celebrated, but I wanted to start at the very beginning. Yeah. So 
uh, Tom Tenney, who was the booker of the sh- old Chicago Improv, which, um, you know, was downtown. It was it, not the one in Schaumburg, but there was a Chicago Part of the improv chain. from the chain. And this guy, this guy ran it and he wanted to be a manager. And so he started. So he was looking to new talents, even he admits selfishly. Yeah. And when when the improv closed, he's in the spirit of reading about all of these alt rooms that are popping up all over the country. Like um, the, the alt movement kind of in the late 80s is starting in Los Angeles with Uncabaret. It's starting in New York City on the Lower East Side. There's, you know, Luna Lounge. There's eating it um, there. And so these and the stuff is happening in Austin. And so he's kind of um, he wants to be a part of that. He wants to take some of the more risque or dangerous acts that he couldn't put up at the improv and do a show specifically to be alt comedy, which was a brand new thing. And he gets mentioned in all of the alt comedy articles that have been written all kind of have an origin or kind of base their article off of a Neil Strauss article I found from the New York times from 1996. He kind of sets the tone for how people talk about alt comedy going forward. Mm -hmm. And in that article, he does mention the comedy asylum, which had been around for three months and, you know, was vastly more important than um, I, I believe than people, than people uh, give it credit for because nobody knows about it. It's been like, you know, widely forgotten because of other shows that have come after. And was that like, that was at the subterranean in Wicker park. Yes. in the sub, and I think sub T was brand new at that point. Yeah. Too. And there was like a night or was it more? It was one night and they wanted to add more. So they added, they added a second show at the Q club, which they uh, regretted immediately. Okay. Interesting. And, and the next one you talk about, uh, I do recall the elevated that that's that. Cause I knew well, that's the second show at the Q club. Yeah. That's something. Yeah. The and, and the, and then King Collier, of course, who, who yes. worked for second city, Greg Mills, who's worked for, for yes. second city. That's when, and that, and, and our friend Matt, Matt Dwyer, the, I, I, I start, that's when I started becoming aware of this other thing going on that had some real teeth to it. That was the first thing anybody noticed. And so I, I found it fascinating that people like Mark Geary, who runs the Lincoln Lodge and was a rat, this is when he started coming around. He's going to like the one or two open mics that exist. And people like him are going to the show where these, these guys had come, they'd come to Chicago. They hadn't been able to perform anywhere. They're going up at, you know, popular open mics, but Kane takes this show, Kane Collier, and he, he makes it a thing that mm-hmm. people start to notice and it starts to become like wildly popular people. And if, you know, if you're noticing it yeah. and I'm, I'm going to guess you hadn't been to that many alternative no. standup no. shows before then. No. So, so alt comedy is becoming a thing while the elevated is coming in a thing and Kane kind of takes the ball and, and runs with it and starts what is widely um, celebrated as, or considered, you know, the first uh, long running alt show in the city was the elevated, which ran for 10 years. Yeah, that's amazing. And you mentioned Mark and uh, here, when we talk about Zanies being a survivor, I mean, I saw Mark, you know, a few months ago. I mean, this guy, you know, how did he look? <laughs> he's so important to this book. He deserves to to be known. He's he. I don't know how he does it and has done it for so long. But um, talk a bit about him and his influence. I I mentioned him. Imme- I dedicate the book to Mark. Yeah. I immediately I say that there should be a statue of him in the vicinity of the old uh, Lincoln Lodge in in North Center. I think that mm-hmm. I I just think that he's. <laughs> For decades, he has selflessly given his talents to a young, drunk comedy community that doesn't know what it has. I yeah. didn't know what I had, and I'm part of that young, drunk, you know, community. He's yeah. he's invaluable, but he, because he's so good, people show up and they think, "Well, Mark will do it," because he will do it. Yeah, he's 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 an amazing human being. He came from. Lester in the Midlands of England in the mid nineties, he's interested in stand-up comedy. He goes to a Barnes and Noble in Skokie where he moves, where he doesn't even know, he didn't know Chicago. He didn't know where it was on a map. He thought it was on the coast. And oh, he, you're thinking of the old orchard. Uh, yeah. He goes, he goes, to, 
<laughs> he goes to Old Orchard Mall because it has a food court and he'd never seen a food court. And he's like, this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened. <laughs> and while he's there, he stumbles into a Barnes and Noble where this book oh. is available yeah. uh, for pre-order. And like he finds Judy Carter's stand- how to do stand up book. Huh? And he's like, well, I got to find open mics. And there are no open mics. There's Hitchcock's. There's like maybe one or two others that like hit sporadically. So he starts the um, his he starts the Red Lion open mic just as a place for him to do more comedy. And that's when he summons like, you got to go see the elevated. Yeah, he's been doing stand up for a year at, at open mics. He goes to the elevated sees these sees talent like you know he's he named you know kane was hugely influential and and uh at the time and people like greg mills who you named and you you know some of these some of these amazing early early uh talents that are there and he goes and he throws away all of his jokes that he'd been writing for a year because he's you know and so that kind of inspired him to up his game production wise and and writing and and with and with stand-up yeah, the Lincoln Lodge. Uh, so, so for for those who don't know, on Lincoln there is this this the Lincoln Diner, huge. It's it's no longer there, sadly. Uh, but <laughs> I took my kids there all the time because it's like huge picture of Abe Lincoln. All their skillets were named after Confederate generals, which seems really problematic now. Uh, and they gave wow. away free free. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't like, realize that. Oh yeah, the Stonewall Jackson. Like my, I realized my my you know like six year old is order ordering you know racist skillets. Um, and uh, and they gave free toys when the kids would leave with right. this with this really loud cash register. And 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 the Lincoln Lodge was in this room behind this diner yeah which had not you know like like it had no reason being there and then you walked in and it was like is this a is this a is this a shriners association is this a a club it's a very confusing thing but i i will never forget my wife uh nate defort who's producing here who came from detroit uh uh we we just went to go see people and then we see this this uh kid with a unibrow Named Kumail, I think, um, who completely slays. And I tracked down his manager at the time, Blair Postman, and I'm just like, "What is the deal with this guy?" I think we might have met once, but I mean, he wasn't a he wasn't a sketcher and improv guy, and it was like, and he was clearly though was someone who I was like, "Okay, this guy's gonna make it." And I think Kumail becomes one of these, like, obviously because he's you know a, a movie star now, but was was at the beginning of their career doing this. I mean, I don't know, were these guys even paid? You got paid a like a flat fee, and then at that point, I think you got paid based on how many people were there to see you. Yeah. So you're not walking out of there with much with much money. Mark was one of the best people about paying. I will yeah. say that most of the shows gave drink tickets. Mark would pay you. In fact, when I moved to Los Angeles, I think a table of six showed up, and they said, "Who are you here to see?" And they said, we used to work with Mike Bridenstine. I don't know. We just liked this show. And Mark sent me a cut of the profits huh. in an envelope from that's just who he is. Yeah. So, yeah, Kumail. So just to start back, the yeah. um, Tom Lawler was who had the idea. He, he goes into that banquet room at the Lincoln restaurant and he's like, this would be a great place for a show. I should get Mark. He's the best producer. Okay. Pitches him the show. And yeah, you were transformed into... Like they had this whole crazy backstory about like this 1970s, like Shriners club and everybody's wearing a fez and the, the, the bartender in back is like an old woman who talks really loud and the cash register is incredibly loud. And the waitresses have to shout their orders at this woman. None of it made any sense or should have been happening like right. just like it's kind of where i came up with the name of the book because the scene itself this type types of shows like this and the elevated the elevated also you'd be on stage and you'd have to pause while a train would go by sure. it was right on the tracks like Plus all of the this stuff, yeah it was they were the perfect name for this place and and so places like um that so when he started this like it kind of had that you know the the diy spirit and and the and people enjoyed knowing, I believe that people that were in that room, like yourself or, or anybody else that was there, kind of knew, like, 
why is this like none of this should be happening but i but man i'm happy that it is do you know what i mean like and so you get to see people like an unknown kumail in 2006 or 7 or whenever he was he was Mm -hmm. you know still with blair postman it could have been 2008 i suppose and 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 he you know he i saw kumail the first i walked into an open mic in 2004 and i saw kumail with his unibrow performing with like no muscles kelly he had no 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 no. there were no there were no muscles (laughs) and and it was, and you could just walk into shows like that and see these unknown talents pre social media, pre, you know, um, everybody blowing up. And, and that's, um, that was kind of the magic of it is you didn't know who you were going to see, but you were going to see somebody that was going to blow your mind. So let's name some of these. I mean, another, another one is a guy who also worked for me at Second City was TJ Miller. TJ, yeah, he did great. The first time I saw him, I was, I was like, this is a star. Like, I don't know who this kid yep. is. He's, he's 21 and he's, the best comedian I've ever seen. Yeah. No, no, no. It was eerie. Uh, Pete Holmes was someone. Pete Holmes. Great, 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 great. Yeah. He's, he was great immediately. This is Pete Holmes pre the crashing days. That show is a lie. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, this is Pete was already amazing. And Hannibal Burris was someone who, and I, what I thought was fascinating because I, I mean, I remember seeing Hannibal uh, and I, the, the the sort of myth, of course, is that he was terrible until he wasn't, but he he got good quick. He got good quick, and so I think people have exaggerated how yeah. how terrible because right. he got so good. And so, but he when he started, he was one of those people that earned it, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, he he's not a big fan of of how it was initially written about him. So I decided to talk to a few people and make sure that I was being fair while also mentioning that the myth that it exists, this narrative, because that's what everybody loves to talk about is how bad Hannibal was when he started. And that might be an unfair and it might not have lasted very long. And it's also, he was a kid and he just started, leave him alone, you know? (laughs) And the guy I want to go a little bit in depth on, and and you kind of do in the book and it ties to midnight Bible school is, is Dwayne Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's cover those two things and let's start with midnight Bible school. So, um, I'm curious from like, is that something you attended or performed at when you were here? Never, but no one would stop talking. Like everyone just talked about it so much that I was hyper aware of it. Um, and the, the mythological stories about it while I was there, I felt like I missed out on something. Interesting. So yeah, the, the story here, and this is kind of why we talked was, uh, Matt Dwyer, uh, was a second city, uh, actor. He was in the Second City ETC. We did not renew his contract to do another show, which, as he says, means he was fired. Technically, no, but I understand why he's saying that. Because <laughs> uh, most people decide when they're going to leave Second City. And, and Matt and I are, you know, very, we were on the bar staff together. We're, you know, and so it was one of those cases where even though he wasn't going to do another show, he had really deep resources and friends and, he, you know, and he had this idea because he kind of, tr- you know, was in these worlds of what if we brought these two things together and we had a theater on our fourth floor called Donnie Skybox. And so we were going to do this midnight show, midnight Bible school, which didn't really, it was, and it was going to be alternative. It didn't really do great at the beginning in part because I think it was at midnight. Right. That didn't help anything. So we shifted to 10. Um, And, and that not alone, but I think that was a big reason that it started selling out. Yeah. Um, but talk a bit about some of the stuff you discovered there. And then I want to talk about, I mean, I really want you to talk about the Bill O'Donnell Dwayne moment in that theater, because when I was rereading your telling of that story, I can't, I had, I had chosen to forget all of that. And it came back (laughs) in such a beautiful wrong. Again, the book is called the perfect amount of wrong. That is the perfect amount of wrong. (laughs) So, Okay. I part of the things that I had heard about with with the Midnight Bible School were stories about it was either which SNL or future famous uh, person had performed uh, on the stage, Tina Fey, or now people are saying um, Jordan Peele. They like they had changed who it was up there. Yeah. So they would they loved to tell me, you know, who is now famous that they Mm -hmm. did a show with. It was for the longest time. Tina Fey was front of mind for people or they would tell me some sort of uh, just completely off the wall 
performance that they saw. And usually by one of two people, it was usually by this guy named Bill O'Donnell, who is now a completely unassuming regular guy. And I think he was back then as well. He would just, his, his thing was that he watched the, the the man on the moon movie about Andy Kaufman was heavily influenced by a lot of the, the cringe or making the audience feel uncomfortable type of humor and he was fueled by that and he would go up and try to purposefully make audiences feel uncomfortable or in, in this circumstance that we're going to talk about confrontational. Yeah. And, and Dwayne Kennedy was a guy who shouldn't have been at any of this. Also, no. Dwayne, Dwayne Kennedy was a superstar young comedian in the late eighties. He had gone to, uh, he'd done uh, the evening at the Apollo, a, casting director had seen him and then he goes to LA. He's, he's an actor in Seinfeld. He's an actor, you know, on Martin, he's doing things. And then when it slows down, which it does for every actor, um, they get hot and it kind of cools. He decides to come back. He's always, he says his first instinct is always to retreat. So he goes back to Chicago. And by the way, in New York, you know, he's around people like Chris Rock, who's, who's young and Chris Rock has later said there was nobody in the scene as funny as Dwayne Kennedy. I was the best. Yep. And people who were around in the late eighties at the clubs, mm-hmm. you know, have said there's nobody as funny or as smart as, yep. as Dwayne Kennedy. So now he's back in this alt scene kind of doing shows and all of the young comedians see this guy who could have been the best comedian in New York or the best comedian in Los Angeles and now he's back at that same level doing these bar shows mm-hmm. with children <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> in the backs of bars. So yes. they obviously and rightfully idolize this guy and they see him do skill level things that they will never be able to do. Yeah. And so there's one instance at uh, Midnight Bible School where <laughs> Bill O'Donnell uh, goes up and tries to purposefully make an audience member try to fight him, or that's just kind of it, it. He needs to make an audience member angry so he can then give the speech that Rocky gives at the end of Rocky Four, or he needs to he needs to make them angry, um, and then he just kind of roll. He makes a guy too mad. He, he, he attacks his date. He's saying um, heinous things to this guy to provoke him. And the audience hates his guts. And yeah. one guy in particular comes to the stage and gets right in his face. And Matt Dwyer told me it is the one time that he ever refunded anybody's money or he thought that he went too far with the show. And it's the highest tension. People talk about this this moment that we're there. They say it's the most amount of tension they've ever felt in a room that, that when it, even when it got diffused people, like everybody's, you know, kind of spiked, everybody's feeling like nothing will ever be funny ever again. And the next thing that, you know, that the audience and the comedians who were watching heard was ladies and gentlemen, Dwayne Kennedy. So now this guy has to come out in in an impossible scenario. And I should mention that, um, part of the antagonism that was caused was he had come out and lips uh, when Bill O'Donnell came out, he had lip synced a Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck bit. That was his thing. And when the audience laughed, he chastised them for laughing and he started, you know, in personally mm-hmm. insulting specific women in the audience yeah. until their dates uh, had to stand up for them. And so after that happens, the, the person says, ladies and gentlemen, Dwayne Kennedy. And so he comes out and he and he looks at the audience. He takes a sip of his wine. He's the coolest head in the room. And he says, if you rush the stage to fight the comedian at the comedy show, you might be a redneck. And the whole place explodes in laughter. They didn't know like what was happening. And then it was like a magic trick. Like I probably definitely. And butchering this story to the point that you might be like, that's all he, the way it was told to me. It's great. It's great. He, he flips them on their head. And so the young comedians who see him do this specifically, um, 
Nate Craig, who, who, who tried to create a scenario where this happens again, you know, he, they just think that he can, he's a superhero that he can follow anything. And there's other examples that people give in the book where something would happen in the crowd or something would you know happen in the show and P, and he would address it and flip it. Like it had been part of the plan. It had been part of the show. Like they were like, Oh, you planned that. So he could mm-hmm. do that. And it's like, no, he just would do that. And it's unfair to him. Obviously everybody knows that now that, that they would cause these scenarios for him or things that he would have to follow. <laughs> but he's like this, he was a mentor figure to all of them. And they still talk about him, you know, with mythical, everybody who's ever run across him and knows how, kind of reclusive he is and kind of you know how reluctant he is to promote himself or do anything about him they i call him the banksy of comedy right because he's he's this guy that you know all of these nationally known comedians consider to be the yoda of the scene uh you know it just has no interest in whether or not the people listening to this care about him or not he's just going to go do what he does is he still doing stand-up He's, you know, people who will come back will, will will try to find him and try to get him to do a show. He's not the easiest guy to reach, but okay. I, I think he still does Zanies. I still think he does the Lincoln Lodge. He has his champions and his fans there. And, okay. you know, um, I know that when Nate Craig was back in Chicago, he had um, Kane and Dwayne open for him just as like, uh, that's who he, that's who he wanted, you know? All right. So, so he's still, he's still out there and he's still probably the most brilliant comedian in any room that he's in. And I think this is a, a, a thing that, that you're talking about too, is it's not just standups going up on stage and their particular act. And what they do is that the, the, these people sort of like embedded their themselves, lifestyle, culture, all these things. And one of the things like I remember in the early days of the improv I'm just gonna say improv comedy scene, which I think like there was a guy named who named himself not Hamlet, and, and that's and he had it legally changed to that, um, and never kind of went anywhere. And then I remember this guy Monty, uh, and and he's starting a thing called Montyism, where he's oh, yes. trying to start his own religion. And then you've got like people getting into fights over their fake names. So yeah. what? <laughs> what when is I, happening? When I moved there and i started doing shows one of the first things i was told is that if i learned monty's last name that i should never repeat monty's last name it was all based on this story of there's a character in the book whose name he goes by chet lactatious in the book and he's the one who gave me that name to call him yeah he went by a different name and the name that he went by is also not his name this guy Mm-hmm. And Monty is his name, but he does not want you to know his last names. Yeah. So this guy Chet, and I could have changed it, but I wanted the name to irritate people. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I kept. So okay. he, his sister happened to be a student at Lincoln Park High School where Monty was teaching improv. So she called him Mr. and then his last name. Last name. So, so she knew his last name. And when Chet found out his last name, he called him on the phone one drunken night at Coyle's Tippling House, and he started repeating his name into the call and said, we're going to get you, and you know, um, I'm going to tell everybody, and kept saying his last name over and over again. Now, Monty gets the phone call, and this is like, nobody had caller ID except for Monty did, because Monty Monty did. All right. Monty did because uh, Monty sold uh, illegal uh, substances that people That's could, right. could uh, smoke. About that. Mm-hmm. It's plenty illegal in a lot of places now. And uh, so he calls the phone back and a comedian whose name is who went by Thomas Mayonnaise, also not his name, uh, says he picks up the phone and he's like, Monty. And he's like, are you with? And he says the guy's name, Chet. And they say, yeah, they're at Coyle's Tippling House. And so Monty shows up, confronts the guy, and sticks his thumb in his eye and attempts to hook his eyeball out of his head. And the people who saw this, like, it's it's a lot of things. He regrets all of it now. They're, they became friends afterwards. The eye stayed in. 
uh, he, I guess he locks eyes, Monty, as he's doing this, locks eyes with a, a comedian named Emily DeRezis, who, uh, who I see fairly frequently out here. And he melts because something about her and the look on her face, he knows to stop doing this. And he saves this guy's eye. And yeah, it was just one of those crazed nights that people were like, well, that guy is that willing yeah. to not give up his name. So none of us are ever going to say no. this. No. Um, another sort of emotional thing that I drew on and, and, and I'm just, I'm just going to be completely honest. I don't, there was a thing called the Chicago um, that got started called the Chicago comedy festival. That guy named Dan Carlson came my initial, when I saw the name of the festival and that guy's name, I'm like, I hated that guy. (laughs) Now I can't tell you what he looks like, what he did, why I hated him, but that is, and and your book kind of like says, Oh no, no, that was kind of for everyone. So what, what am I drawing on in my sense memory? Because I just remember just not liking that festival or that guy. Well, I, you know, he came back and kind of ran like one of the zanies, I think. And he's a plenty nice guy. Like, uh, yeah, he, sure. he, he was a comedian. He came to Chicago and he wanted to do a festival. And so he starts, he kind of links up with zanies. They do a festival in like 1998. Yeah. Um, this, nobody notices it. Uh, you know, um, his shows are incredible lineups that nobody knew about because no, because he just has an eye for talent, mm-hmm. but he doesn't, he doesn't market it well. And it was, there were shows that were like the, like the UCB troupe yeah. with Louis CK and Mitch Hedberg. That was like one show. Yeah. And didn't and, do well. No, like 10 people showed up. So this is oh. like, so and Alan Johnson, who was doing comedy criticism in the Tribune, is like, this has nobody here that's good. Like, and so, like, so nobody notices it the first year. Then 1999 happens. Mark Geary is heavily involved, kind of representing the scene yeah. on its behalf. And then the scene turns on him. You know, yeah. they're, they're like, who is this guy? And, and why are they bringing outsiders into Chicago? and calling it the Chicago comedy festival, which I kind of poke fun at because it's like, what logic is that? Like, do you think Woodstock was just musicians from (laughs) state? Yeah. Like what, (laughs) like do you think Coachella, like they still think this, these, like a lot of these, no, 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 I know. And they're, they're like, I can't believe you brought comedians from outside. It's like, that's, that's how it works. You make it a big deal. And then through the big deal of it, is when people start to notice the lo- like the locals. You have to make it a thing. This is funny. I, I was rewatching. There was a, a documentary done of when we created the show called Paradigm Lost. Was a couple shows after Pinata. Yes, and, uh, and I'm interviewed for it. And, and where I was looking for some other tape or whatever. And I, I I have this line in there which is I go I go Chicago is part thriving metropolis part cow town, and I, that is what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah, where like all this amazing stuff is coming, and then we get really upset about someone trying to do something. Oh, oh, but the but the whole anti gatekeeper thing is what was that was the heartbeat of the whole scene, I guess. So, I mean, it was I on one on one end, it's just like everybody needs to chill out and shut up and just be ready when you're ready. And you know, this is how festivals work. But there was this sense of urgency in the scene. There was like a screw you if you come in here and try to take what's mine. And you have to be, I, I kind of commend both uh, sides of it because, okay, the following year, like in 2000, a comedian named Carl Kozlowski with Kane Collier decide they're going to sabotage the whole thing. They're going to create their own festival at the same time as the Chicago festival to compete with the festival. It was kind of like they didn't get picked to be in it or Carl didn't get picked to be in it. Carl didn't get picked. Carl, we should also say was a journalist. Was a journalist. Yeah. He was a freelance journalist and um, he did a good job like going up against it or nobody would have cared. He, and the point that he makes is, Edinburgh has the Fringe Festival. Right. You know, Slam Slam Dance exists. There's there's festivals all over the place. 
that are in response to festivals. Mm-hmm. But it was, this was kind of done, but Geary, Gary's involvement in the festival and the fact that Gary has money in the festival and he's part of that scene, whereas people from the scene are trying to undercut it kind of caused a lot of political friction and people like Kane don't care about this at all. And I can't believe anybody cares about this. It was fascinating to me that the scene is the first time the industry came to pay attention to these young comics the industry, ate, like the city rather, ate itself and decided, you know, that, that it wasn't ready for prime time. And it was fascinating to me because it's like, oh, what if industry had come to Chicago earlier and seen some of the talent that were there earlier? You know, would it like would it have been ready? And no, it yeah. wasn't. I mean, it either imploded with drugs when somebody found it, found, you know, picked picked a person Um you know, there's a story of David Stebbins who got the two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollar, you know, um, deal from from NBC. I want to say, and he spent blew all of it. He blew all of it on blow, and you know, um, came back a disaster for the festival. And then, you know, the anti-festival happening kind of blew up the whole thing, and it went away. And so everybody got what they wanted, and Chicago stayed local for uh, you know uh, almost ten more years. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for your yes and story, but I want to sort of end on this because it's it's my memory, and then and then you added to it, <clears throat> which was I remember. So we were because my wife directed T.J. Miller in the Turing Company at Second City. Um, she was and I were keenly aware that he was not a traditional Second City performer, and if he was going to have success. Here we would need to some, somehow protect him. There was a uh, a brilliant, uh, still is a brilliant uh, comedic performer named um, Brad Morris, who kind of took him under his wing. And Brad was a very traditional Second City guy who went on. And so TJ was working on this this thing called um, Very Bad Porn, uh, which which I believe we put money in. Uh, uh, Andrew Alexander at Second City. I, I know we looked at videotape. I don't. Was Jordan working on that? The no, Jordan. Jordan. No, it was separate. And in fact, um, it was kind of. It was kind of like he realized. I think TJ realized that the very bad porn thing wasn't probably what was envisioned. I I watched it and I was like, these are all very talented people doing something that's very terrible. Yeah, like it was not the. And so I think that when he saw the videos that Jordan made, so um, let's talk about Jordan. So Jordan Vogt Roberts approaches me. He's he's 21. He's a college student at Columbia. He comes to the Lincoln Lodge to kind of scout it out because he's going to be the variety act in in a week or two to show his his student video projects because it had won a contest. He had done a music video for the uh, Shake Your Rump by the Beastie Boys. It had won a contest and Tom Lawler, who picked Variety X for the Lincoln Lodge at that point, saw this kid and was amazed by him and said, come, you know, come be the Variety Act. And so he did. And it's, but he came the week before he came St. Patrick's Day, 2006. And I was on that show performing blacked out of my mind, just <laughs> the drunkest performance I'd ever done. But for some reason, I killed with the dumbest material, everything aligned for me on stage that night. And at least it's in my drunken memory. Yes. It could have been bad, but Jordan approached me afterwards because I had shown a video before my set and, and Jordan said, do you do a lot of things with video? Do you do a lot of video projects? And maybe I was drunk or maybe I just thought this is a throwaway conversation, but I said, I lied. And I said, I did. And he said, we should work together sometime. And I said, yeah, we should. And I thought I would never see him again. Sure. But then I saw his picture on the upcoming lineup for, uh, for the Lincoln Lodge. And I watched the video and I was like, this kid is amazing. Mm. And at that moment in time, we had just started a blogging website with people like Kumail and a group of other, and, and a group of other local comedians. And we wanted to make videos uh, and I saw this kid and I was like, he would be the perfect person to make videos. So his idea was to have us do stand up. He would film it and then it would cut away to act outs of what we were talking about. And we called it 
blurds or blog nerds and we put out videos for the release party. We didn't, th- but people reacted so enthusiastically to the yeah. videos, which this was 2006. So YouTube is new. Internet videos are just becoming a thing. And so this was all the rage. And we were at the forefront of that. So TJ sees it. His other video project was very bad porn, which um, I'm sorry you guys put money in it. It was pretty like I'm, I know a lot of talented people worked on it. It didn't. It was, I, I don't think it went anywhere and I don't think it was great. But but TJ immediately knew that he needed to be involved with with us and with and with this kid. And so he came over to my apartment and he was pacing around. He told me we were sitting on a gold mine. And a lot of people were against him joining our group because they thought he would take it over and use Jordan for his own means, which is end up, you know, kind of what he exactly does what do. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but we're completely moment, right. <laughs> but at that moment in time, he was one of the hottest comedians in the country. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, he wasn't going to stay in Chicago for long. He was, he, I think maybe he was about to get a, you know, his pilot for ABC in Los Angeles. He was out of there, but we on knew on that carpoolers, right? On carpoolers. Yeah. And so we knew that he, he was about to be a star. So it was, so we decided to take the risk. Like everybody thought he was great. Everybody thought he was one of the best comedians. It was just a matter of what does he need this for? Yeah. And it turned out he, you know, he, you know, I don't want to put motives on him, but it is what he did (laughs) at the end of the day. And and we should say this about Jordan. This guy is the guy who ended up directing Kong skull Island, which made something like, I don't know, Five hundred, six hundred million dollars at the box office. Yeah, and and they ended up. TJ and Jordan ended up making this a show on Comedy Central called Mashup. So it was, yeah. it did become a TV show with, you know, but, but um, you know, it kind of gets it, it gets dicey in in the process of. of yes, there's uh, lots of problematic behavior that we don't need to go into. That people sure, yeah. on their own if they would like to, as I did when I'm googling. People. Very, it's oh. very pub, very public. What what uh, he's allegedly done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I am. I'm very curious for your yes and story, given everything, <laughs> the rabbit hole that we've discussed that, that we're going down and remembering us and our youths, our respective youths. So, do you have a yes and story for us? Well, I, I think that I think that all, for me, I was supposed to do stand up comedy with a duo in college. So I was supposed to go up with another guy at the University of Iowa, and we were we had a two man act that we were going to do that we had been practicing. Because the, the, a club that I that I started at needed an MC, and so we were to audition for it. He bailed on me. He went MIA for days beforehand. So I had a choice to say to cancel the audition and say like, "Well, we had a thing," or to take whatever I had written um, for the act and use it myself. And so no, I see none of these things in Chicago. I so my yes and is probably deciding to do stand up in the first place and then to make the jump to Chicago in the second place, because I think that none of, none of these stories that I talk about and none of like the stories that happen in this book would if I wouldn't have known about any of it. If I hadn't said, you know what? Uh, I could give up on this right now and try to get another day, but I'm going to, I'm going to say yes. And then, and see what happens and seeing what happens led, I guess, to, to a, a book that's coming out uh, September 25th and you can pre-order it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or I guess target. I also saw the book is called the perfect amount of wrong, the rise of all comedy on Chicago's North side. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
recevoir.